Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hey, everybody. I'm telling you, somebody needs to do a book on Ohio's cemetery mysteries because these stories just keep rising from the ground, pun intended. Why aren't you writing this story? You know what? By the time we're done with Ohio Mysteries as a project, I might. We may have (laughs) enough. Because you remember, Steve, several months ago we did an episode where we shared five cases of grave sites that were surrounded by mystery. I think my favorite of those was the story of Chief Jacosat and why he might have cursed the Cleveland Indians from his grave across the street from the stadium. Yes, the Warlock's grave, too. Yes, that was the next one that we did. We did a 10-minute mystery on that one, a little bit of fun history there out of New Philadelphia. Well, I've got three more for you. So welcome to Mysterious Graves, Part 3. By pure coincidence, the first two of these stories take place in Evergreen Cemetery, but not the same Evergreen Cemetery. They're actually on opposite sides of the state. And I almost fell out of my seat doing this research when I learned that our first story takes place in a place called Hell's Hollow, and the other story took place next to Helltown Road. I kid you not. So first up, we're going to Evergreen Cemetery in Painesville, Ohio. That's a city up north in Lake County. Folks walking about the graveyard may come across a stone with a simple but very intriguing etching. It reads only, Joseph Linhart, 1867 to 1922, not guilty. Here is the story behind that tombstone. On Saturday, June 25, 1921, Lake County Sheriff Ora Spink and his deputies were summoned to a farm in Leroy Township, specifically a section of the township known as Hell's Hollow. There, a 54-year-old farmer, Joseph Linhart, reported his wife, Anna, was missing. He said the day before, he'd gone to Ashtabula for the day, and his wife was supposed to go visit her married daughter living nearby. Anna had two daughters from a previous marriage, but Anna never made that trip. And when Joseph returned home at 8 o'clock, he couldn't find her. He said he searched through the night for her, and when he couldn't find her by morning, he called the sheriff. Well, deputies began their search on his property right away. And they had no problem finding her. The 55-year-old Anna Linhart was at the bottom of an old well near a barn on their property. It was a gruesome discovery. There were large gashes in the woman's head. And Coroner M.H. Bradley ruled they had been inflicted with a blunt instrument of some kind. There was also a man's bloodstained shirt in the well and bloodstains on the grass. Investigators grew suspicious of Linhart when they learned he and his wife had quarreled the day she disappeared. The fight was over a cow, of all things. And yes, Anna's daughter said there was an overnight search party that looked for her Friday night. But Joseph Linhart was not among the searchers. The coroner held an inquest, and on Monday, June 27, Sheriff Spink and Deputy Edward Rasmussen arrested Linhart and charged him with first-degree murder. Their theory was that he had hit his wife with an axe and tossed her into the well. 
Now, there was only circumstantial evidence, but this promised to be one of the most sensational trials Lake County had ever seen. They took him to Lake County Jail to be held for the grand jury. He was bound over without bail, and a trial date was set for that November. But Joseph Linhart wasn't going to make it that far. At 7.30, the morning of October 14, 1921, a prisoner named Joe Smith was taking some fruit to Linhart for his breakfast when he found him in his bunk covered with blood. The jail physician, Dr. A.P. Brady, was called, and he found the body warm, suggesting Lenhardt had died within minutes of when he was discovered. Authorities determined it was suicide. He'd cut his own throat with one of the shaving razors the prisoners were given. The razor was found right beside the dead man. Sheriff Spink said it came as a surprise. Lenhart seemed to be in good spirits. He'd been playing cards with other prisoners the night before and gave no indication of being depressed. Prisoners in cells adjoining Lenhart said they hadn't heard a sound from his cell that morning. They were surprised a man could slit his own throat and wait to die without making a noise. Linhart, it should be said, never wavered from his claim of innocence. Linhart's attorney, Homer Harper, arranged for him to have a brief funeral service, then burial at Evergreen Cemetery in Painesville. Now, it was said that Homer Harper was a hotshot lawyer who was very proud of the fact that he had never lost a case. But some folks were chiding him, saying, well, looks like Linhart was his first defeat because if his client killed himself, that was as good as admitting his guilt. Ha, Harper said, since his client was dead and could never be proven guilty in a court of law, he wasn't going to let that put a shadow on his resume. He ordered the stone for Linhart's grave, a handsome chunk of granite that would forever claim not guilty and preserve Homer Harper's legal record. By the way, Harper got the year wrong on that tombstone. I told you it gives the death year of 1922. This story actually happened in 1921, so that's a pretty big typo. No idea why that happened. Now hop in the car with me and let's head southwest. We're going to another evergreen cemetery, this one in St. Paris, Ohio a small village in Champaign County. Only about 38,000 people call Champaign County home. Fewer still back in the 1970s when this story takes place. There were just 30,000 people in the entire county at that time. Needless to say, the village of St. Paris hadn't seen a whole lot of excitement in its 200-year existence. The greatest disaster to befall the town was a Thanksgiving morning fire in 1883. You know, it was not easy to stop a fire in the 19th century. And after flames started licking a tin shop, it spread with such fury, the entire business district was wiped out. But this was also the kind of place where a religious revival could make the history books. Back after the turn of the 20th century, an evangelist named Wilson came to town. And after six weeks of fire and brimstone teachings at his hastily erected tabernacle, he'd managed to convert 350 citizens in an event that was talked about for years. But here's the big event that caught our attention in St. Paris. 
It happened in 1973 when thousands of people, some from out of state, flocked to the cemetery at Troy and High Streets in the town's southwest corner. They wanted to see a 20-foot marble monument glow in the dark. It was the first week in September of 73 when a local newspaper, the Piqua Daily Call, got wind that people were gathering nightly at Evergreen to see that strange phenomenon. A monument had been standing in the middle of the McMorrin family plot for 92 years. It was 20 feet tall and made of Vermont marble. The patriarch of the family was Abraham Lincoln McMorrin, whose family was among Champaign County's early pioneers. He had settled in St. Paris, and when he died in 1881, he was buried in the cemetery, whose land was actually donated by his own family. The thing that was luring everyone to the cemetery from dusk to dawn was the fact that the monument on the family plot glowed in the dark as if someone had put a spotlight on it. It was inexplicable. No other stones around it were illuminated. Not even the grass or trees around it showed any ambient light. Just that monument. The Piqua Daily Call found the caretaker of Evergreen Cemetery, who said he noticed the stone glowing about five years earlier, though it did used to be much dimmer. It was so bright now, it could be seen from the road 200 yards away. And that wasn't all. The caretaker told the reporter there was also a statue of an angel that marked the family plot, and it had been slowly revolving. He said the angel, which had faced west, had made a full nine-degree turn to the north. Next, the newspaper asked a chemist from the Piqua Granite Company to visit the site and weigh in on the matter. The chemist turned in his report. The monument was Vermont marble, no glowing properties there. There are molds that grow on stones that can luminesce, but this stone didn't have any such growth on it. It could be the cut of the highly polished stone was picking up light from somewhere and reflecting it, but there was no obvious light source and he couldn't explain why other white polished marble stones around this one weren't glowing. And so people continued to make their own pilgrimages to the cemetery to see what they thought of the curiosity. It was like a beacon drawing in thousands of gawkers. The small village wasn't accustomed to such attention. The country roads were jammed with traffic. Some nights, the small police force had to stay out until 4 a.m. directing the visitors. They spotted license plates from all over Ohio as far away as Illinois. They came carrying binoculars and cameras. One night, the crowd included representatives from two newspapers, three TV stations, and a radio station. Police Chief Ken Neff told a Dayton Daily News reporter, You wouldn't believe the number of people who drove into St. Paris and asked, Where's the graveyard? And where's the stone? Chief Neff said he was confident there was a natural explanation, not a supernatural one. But he admitted the whole thing was kind of weird, especially because this unique illumination had a quirk. It glowed brightest if you looked at it from a distance. Move east or west six feet, 
and the glow dimmed, walked toward the monument 50 feet. It disappeared. Stand next to the marker, it completely blacked out. Walk away, it would relight. One Friday night that September, someone shot out the street light at Troy and High Streets, presumably to test whether that light was affecting the stone. It wasn't. But the discharge of a weapon was enough for the town to get nervous. Trustees first tried closing the cemetery to vehicular traffic, though they continued to allow pedestrians to walk down the lane to the burial plot to examine the marker after dark. One theory, the supernatural one, was that Abraham Lincoln McMorrin was buried under the stone and that the light was his spectral figure. McMorrin descendants who lived in town said hogwash. Besides, they said, Abraham Lincoln McMorrin was actually buried a distance away from that stone. Those who believed in science came up with a pretty convincing explanation of what was happening. A block away from the cemetery sat the farm of Roy Parthermore. It was located on County Road 239, northwest of the cemetery. And no joke, in town, County Road 239 is Helltown Road. And there, a mercury light lit up the barnyard every night. Some thought the light was too far away from the cemetery. And yet, some men tossed a gunny sack over the farmer's light, and the monument over in the cemetery went dark. When they removed the sack, the monument glowed once again. Well, that seemed pretty cut and dried. It would also explain why someone close to the monument would cause the stone to dim. They were simply standing in the path of the light. But other folks said it cannot be that simple. Why did that light not illuminate any other marble stone in the cemetery? And some old timers in the village insisted they'd seen that stone glowing 30 years earlier, though it was never made clear how long the farmer had his night light up. And so, unsatisfied with his explanation, spectators continued to descend on the cemetery. By now, Champaign County was even donating sheriff deputies to patrol, patrol the area, and the Ohio State Patrol even sent a trooper to help watch the streets. A month into this event, Chief Neff said policing the cemetery was costing the town money. But the good-natured officer added, so far as I'm concerned, we can put up with it until it runs its course. Well, it ran its course shortly after, because after the crowd had succeeded in trampling the cemetery and knocking over a tombstone or two, trustees ordered the graveyard closed to foot traffic from sundown to dawn. Since you could still see the light from the road, it took longer than that for the crowds to finally dissipate, but it did come to pass. By the way, the tip for this story came from Ohio Mysteries listener Paul Williams, who grew up in St. Paris, and he said as far as he knows, the stone finally stopped glowing in the late 70s or early 80s. Now we've got one more cemetery to visit tonight, and this story, the saddest of them all. 
West Jefferson is a village in Madison County, a little west of Columbus. And if you go for a stroll in their Foster Chapel Cemetery, it's a small, isolated graveyard off County Road 7. You might spot a marker that looks out of place. It's not made of granite or marble or sandstone like the others. It was created from a wooden two-by-four in the shape of a large cross. And it's not in any predefined row. This one is off the beaten path, up against the cemetery's back fence. Look closer and you'll see white reflective letters on a black background that mark this spot for Jessica Lynn Keene. It's the smaller letters that run up and down the cross that attempt to resolve this mysterious memorial. Those letters say, Killed here, March 17, 1991. Jessica Keene is actually buried six miles down the road at Sunset Cemetery in neighboring Galloway, almost a straight shot from here. But it was Foster Chapel Cemetery where the 15-year-old's life was ended at the hands of a brutal killer. This is Jessica's story. Jessica Keene was a sophomore at Westland High School in Columbus. She loved to sing and compose piano music and she dreamed of going to veterinary school. She was also a cheerleader and an honor student. She had a sister, Heather, who was four years older. Her parents, Rebecca and James, divorced when she was three years old. Her dad lived in Dayton, and she had recently moved with her mom from Kettering, where she had spent three years in a gifted program, to Columbus. After the move, Jessica began to struggle at school and at home. She started hanging out with a rougher crowd and developed a crush on an 18-year-old boy. Her friend said she was in love. She quit cheerleading. Her grades dropped. She started skipping classes. Her parents both objected to the relationship. The young man was a high school dropout who had trouble with authorities. But there's only so much a parent can do. And as Jessica's life seemed to spiral and arguments with her mother increased, they agreed to a two-week cooling period. Jessica was taken to Huckleberry House, a live-in counseling center in Columbus for runaways and troubled teens. Jessica was placed there on March 4, 1991. The plan was for her to stay there until March 16, then return home. The day before she was to leave, She walked out of Huckleberry House saying she planned to go to the mall. It was about 3 p.m. When she didn't come back by Friday night, they had an 11 p.m. curfew, she was reported missing. Two days later, a woman who went to Foster Chapel Cemetery in West Jefferson to photograph the old headstones there found Jessica's body. The graveyard was 20 miles from the teen facility she had left. She was naked, but for one sock and her bra. She also had duct tape around her hands and covering her mouth. Police theorized she had escaped her captor and was chased down the country road, running into the cemetery in search of somewhere to hide. Behind one marker, they found her missing sock and the imprint of a knee in the mud, as if she had been trying to conceal herself behind the tombstone. Then apparently she made a run for it to the back of the cemetery. There was a farmhouse just beyond it, 
Police believe she was probably following the light, but she only made it as far as the fence. Police believe that's where she was killed, beaten to death with a blunt object. Jessica was still wearing her ring and watch, but a pendant with the word taken was nowhere to be found. Jessica's 18-year-old boyfriend was questioned, but DNA eventually ruled him out. And Jessica's killer walked free for many years until old evidence from 1991 was run through a modern DNA database that didn't exist when she was killed. And police found him. On April 9, 2008, police in Burlington, North Carolina, arrested 51-year-old Marvin Lee Smith Jr. and charged him with Keene's rape and murder. He was extradited to Ohio. Turns out when Smith took Jessica back in 1991, he was out on bond awaiting trial for the sexual assault and kidnapping of two different Columbus women. He was never identified as a suspect in Jessica's death. Five months after killing her, he was convicted in those other cases and served nearly nine years before being paroled in 2000. Smith ended up going back into prison for a couple of months because of a parole violation that same year. And that's when they took his DNA, which by 2000 was now required of all new felons. That's when his DNA ended up in the national database. But it would take a few more years for cold case investigators who were taking a fresh look at Jessica's murder to resubmit their old evidence and the Ohio Crime Lab to find the match. After being brought back to Ohio, Smith pleaded guilty. In a Madison County courtroom, he said he had snatched Jessica from the bus stop across from the teen shelter. It was located at Wineland Park, north of downtown Columbus. That was 6 p.m. Later that Friday night, he was driving her, bound with duct tape in his car, near Foster Chapel Cemetery, when she got away from him. A trail of footprints in the mud and pieces of duct tape marked her trail as she ran for her life. She collided with a fence post and fell. Smith said he jerked a 70-pound tombstone out of the ground and beat her with it. It broke in two. He tossed the pieces on the other side of the fence. Investigators found them. Jessica's mom, Rebecca, was given the opportunity to speak with Smith in the courtroom. She got the last word. She said, do you feel the heat? Do you feel his presence? Do you smell the sickening odor? He's right there smiling, standing right behind you. It's the devil himself ready to take you. Wow, those are some interesting stories. Maybe St. Paris will open up the cemetery for Ohio Mysteries to go and investigate. Well, I'm convinced it was that light. And my guess is if it continued glowing for a while and stopped later, I'd be interested to know whether the farmer had just simply uh, changed the angle of his light or put in something less powerful. I don't know much about mercury lights. Are they way more powerful than the normal lights? Yeah, they're supposed to be pretty powerful. I'm thinking that the cut of that memorial was just absolutely perfect. If that light wasn't reflecting off any other tombstone, I think it just had to be this really freak coincidence that that 
cut was picking up that light. All right. Well, that's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week, and may all of your mysteries have happy endings. Ohio Mysteries is produced by Stephen Yoder and Paula Schleiss. Special thanks to our Patreon and PayPal supporters. Thank you, Audionautics, Daniel Birch, and Adderin for the music. And of course, to all of you who support our show by listening and telling friends and family about us. You can find us on Twitter at Mysteries Ohio. You can find us on Facebook by just searching for Ohio Mysteries. We are also on Instagram at Ohio Mysteries. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.